I said on Facebook that the rules change at minute 100. In case you haven't figured it out from the several installments already before I've even pressed play on minute 100. I've actually been looking stuff up. Reading about the movie. Reading about Panos. Watching interviews with Panos. Watching reviews. One review in particular that I watched start to finish by a YouTube channel called Geekin' with James Hancock. He called it the best movie-going experience I've had all year. <sighs> I understand taste is personal. Subjective. It's like I found this review, and I was like, oh, I should see what his other reviews are like, just to get like a baseline. But then I started listening to this review first. And I'm like, no, I won't trust any of his reviews. I don't trust his voice. I don't mean his literal voice, I mean his opinions. I won't, I won't go through and nitpick his videos start to finish. That would be silly. <laughs> you do that for films, not reviews. His review's like 15 minutes long, so I'm not gonna, not gonna do that. However, I might grab a few highlights. Like this one. And the movie's unlike anything I've ever seen before. It completely defies categorization. Because it's completely original. It's utterly unique. Uh, no. No. It's a generic revenge plot. Stretched beyond its limits, or beyond its reasonable limits. And someone will hear that phrase and think that's a wonderful description for something good. I mean, stretched beyond it should, what it should be, stretched beyond what a film should be. It is far too long for the film it is. Shots go on too long. Scenes go on too long. It's not unique. There's many horror films recently that used, like, this scene's in all red to try to create atmosphere. It's cheap. Unfortunately, it works. In this film, I don't think it works, primarily because of the previous problems. Things go on too long. When something goes too long, the color timing change or the filter seems like an odd choice. One editing bit that works, although I think plot-wise, story-wise, it's stupid, would be the edit when Andy tries the stuff in the jar. And we get the quick edits of flashes of things he's seeing, and they're in full color, they're in weird colors, they're psychedelic, they're strange. He sees himself melting. That works. It's stupid, but visually it works, because it isn't... Now, imagine they'd lingered on that for like ten minutes. We would have gotten bored, or I hope we would have gotten bored. More likely people would be like, that is the most metal scene ever. Fuck those people. This was a surreal, beautiful nightmare filled with violence and humor and sex appeal and insanity. And it was a dreamlike experience from which I never really wanted to wake up. Most of that description is just fine, but sex appeal? When? Where? When Fishmouth pulls off his robe? When Swanee Todd leans in like he's got a thing for Fishmouth? When Mandy's eyeball gets an extreme close-up and then Susan pours drugs in there? Or when you see the aftermath of Penis Blade's latest kill. There's no sex appeal in this movie unless you already fetishize scars and drugs and metal shirts and tigers and unrealistic S&M get-ups. <laughs> and here I... I, I, I imagine what I just said is exactly what the fans of this movie fetishize. It's like people that are excited by the chainsaw fight. The whole point to the chainsaw fight. Yes, I've Listen to interviews with Panos now. I know what he thinks he was going for with this movie. The whole point to the fucking chainsaw fight is that it's toxic masculinity or masculinity in combat. It's not supposed to be a positive thing. But that's one of the flaws in the film, though, as I've already mentioned before. 
you can't do a critique of people who choose violence when they don't get their way while making a revenge movie, which is about someone doing violence when he doesn't get his way. Jeremiah may be the obvious bad man here, but our cheering on Andy is worse. Sex appeal. Well, this movie does defy easy categorization in terms of specific genres. Again, it defies categorization. No, it doesn't. It's a fucking horror film. Plotted like a revenge movie. Played like a horror film. That's it. Just because people call it an art house movie because of all the stupid color and the pretentious bullshit doesn't mean that it suddenly becomes something else. It's still just a horror film. A revenge movie. At best, two categories. But getting back to how this movie compares to the current landscape of film, I feel like so many movies today are wallowing in nostalgia for a bygone era. They're either dusting off or rebooting or resetting an established franchise from way back when, basically mining the ideas of the past for all that they're worth, or they're just wallowing hopelessly in cultural Easter eggs and trivia and details like that. And when people wallow in that kind of nostalgia, I feel like it only serves to underline the fact that we have so few great movie-going experiences to enjoy here in 2018. Common complaint. Wallowing in nostalgia. First of all, nostalgia generally is a positive thing. Wallowing is inherently negative. It's a stupid line. Second of all, no, most movies are not reboots and remakes. You went to see this movie in New York. You live in New York, because then you know there's plenty of fucking movies to see. We have a podcast about movies. You do movie reviews on YouTube. I hope you're seeing many more movies than the stupid-ass people who say this shit. No, most movies are not remakes and sequels. Mainstream movies are. Big blockbuster movies, because those are the ones they throw the money behind, because they know the audience is there. Such a bullshit argument. And that mining the past for all they're worth. What do you think this movie is? You just... I skipped over this, because I don't really care about Italian horror very much. He just spent like a minute explaining how this was like an homage to Italian horror films from the 70s. <laughs> At least be consistent, you know? Do you like it for being original, or do you like that it copies things that you like? I'm not that concerned about the subject matter of that. I'm concerned about how it's made. That we have so few great movie-going experiences to enjoy here in 2018? Let's see. The recent 2018. It came out in 2018. A quiet Place. The Endless, trippy movie, much better than this one. For fans of this movie, I'm sure they would have liked, or did like, you were never really here. Thought it was good, but problematic. Infinity War, Tully, Black Panther, Wonder Woman, Hereditary. I hated the ending, but it was a fucking good horror film along the way. And it did things slowly, but it did things interestingly. Good soundtrack, good visuals. Better performances, better script. Won't You Be My Neighbor came out last year. Leave No Trace. Eighth Grade. Sorry to Bother You. Three Identical Strangers. Blind Spotting. Beast. Black Klansman. Crazy Rich Asians. I mean, some of these aren't fantastic movie-going experiences or whatnot, but they're fine. Hellfest. Fucking reboot Halloween. There's so many problems with that movie. It's better than this one. Can You Ever Forgive Me? Creed 2, Bohemian Rhapsody. The Favorite, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And on the Apocalypse. It's just... It's cheap and it's easy. And most people eat it up. Because most people don't see that many movies. And they see promos. 
just for the big movies because those are the ones that get the most promos. Those are the ones that have the most money behind them. The movie reviewer, this dude, what's his name? James Hancock should know better. But basically, Nicolas Cage and Andrea Riceborough, they play a couple living out in the wilderness. They're absolutely in love. Absolutely in love? According to what? That she jumps up and kisses him when he gets home? We barely see them do anything together. We barely see them interact. She tells her stupid Starling story. Neither one of them has any energy. When he's stoking the fire, she's for some reason off in the water. That scene doesn't even mean they were on set at the same time. We don't see what they're doing in the boat. We don't see them having conversations. They sit and eat steak and watch TV. Quietly. She's very creative. She does a lot of illustrations. She loves reading fantasy novels. She makes illustrations. Yeah, sure. They suck. Well, no, they're okay. But we don't really see them. We see one in annoyingly overlaid close-ups. She loves fantasy novels. We see her read one. And it sucks. But we'll come back to that. But these two characters are absolutely, totally hopelessly in love. It's actually one of the most sweet, compelling love stories in recent memory. That's just fucking stupid. What? Sweetest love stories? They lay on a couch quietly doing nothing. We only see them kiss once. Oh, they talk about planets. Oh, I guess you found that romantic. I found it stupid. Where people move by such shallow bullshit. Why am I not? And obviously watching movies is an incredibly subjective experience, but this movie found a way to tap into so many things that I love and adore about storytelling in general. Love and adore about storytelling in general. Storytelling. Take everything slow and have very little dialogue. I don't... Because if you are a true, genuine lover of cinema, and if you are, you know who you are, this is the kind of outrageous cinema that true cinephiles live for. Yeah, that's what we call a true Scotsman fallacy. Define your terms so that you can't be wrong. Because by your terms, uh, that makes me not a true fan of cinema. I disagree, and I reject your definition. So, fuck you. <laughs> live for. You know, I live for movies with, you know, comprehensible plots characters with actual depth and interesting personalities, some implication that they have actual interests and goals in life. Mandy, air quotes, has interests, sure. Does she have goals? Does Andy? What do they want out of life? See, it's a sweet love story. A sweet love story should imply there's some experience behind it. There's some destination going forward. That's why so many romance stories end in weddings, because a wedding is an easy an easily understood and easily digested defining moment. It's a goal. These two have nowhere to go. Andy wants to move for some reason. Mandy once didn't kill a bird for some reason. Air quotes just learned that Jupiter has a big red storm. It's it's dumb. Because for the first half of the movie, this is all about the character that the movie's named after, Mandy Bloom. Yeah, I'm going to reject that description. The movie's about the character the movie's named after, Mandy Bloom. Let's just go factually. Facts. Not her name. The movie never tells us her name is Mandy. Certainly never says her name is Mandy Bloom. 
I said before in a different episode that, yeah, I've written a story where the main characters, I deliberately avoided letting the audience know their names. And there was a reason for that. There's no reason for that here, especially when the title of your film is supposedly the title of your main character for the first hour. Someone should call her Mandy. There should be other characters in this film is the problem, really. Because if Mandy and Andy were constantly calling each other by their names, you'd have like the Titanic problem where people just say names too often. If you're the only two people in a cabin, you don't have to keep saying each other's names. Unless maybe, I don't know, you need their attention. Like, she she goes outside to get him when he's out there smoking. She's like, hey Andy, come in here, you know? It's easy. Screenwriters do it all the fucking time. She's not the main character of the first hour. At best, she's the main character of the first half hour. And then we're focused on Jeremiah and Swine and Susan. It's a problem with the structure of this movie is it doesn't know who the main characters are. But her face is so expressive and her eyes are so enormous. No. <laughs> expressive. <laughs> no, it should be. But it never expresses anything but, I don't know. What would you call it? Detached awe? She just stares at things with big eyes. It's not expressive. If you have to read into it, it's not expressive. If you have to invent it, it's not expressive. She has the same look on her face when she's coming out of the water, when she's walking on the road, when she's reading her book, as when she is being held down by one of the stupid black skull centibaby bikers. It's not expressive. It's repetitive. It's boring. And one of the things that absolutely made me love her is the fact that she's always got her nose buried in this fantasy novel throughout the first third of the movie. She's always got her nose buried in this fantasy novel? No, not for the first third of this movie. It's two scenes that, in context of the film, happen the same morning. And there are these great long sequences where she's reading paragraphs from the book. That is a very hard thing to make compelling on the screen, but I was absolutely riveted. Very hard to make compelling? Yeah, and they still didn't. And I don't know if these fantasy novels are actual real books, but so far I've been unable to find any information about the novels that are featured in the movie. These fantasy novels are real books, so he can't... He... <sighs> it's the same fucking book twice. I know, he's... I didn't mention this, but he did his review right after getting home from watching the movie. He didn't freeze frame. He didn't look at the cover. But it's such a stupid presumption to, A, assume multiple things when there's no reason to. B, to assume they'd use real books. I mean, I have suggested they should have. But, you know, the chances of an, a film doing that. No, they're going to read a book. They're either going to read some obvious, famous literature that everyone will recognize. Or they're going to make something up. Because copyrights, they don't want to deal with paying people. But they're just the weirdest, strangest, dirty, hippie Jesus freaks ever caught on film. I love that he calls them dirty, hippie Jesus freaks. There's nothing inherently dirty about them. They all seem quite clean, actually. And these aren't like your like cinematic redneck kind of characters where they look like they haven't bathed in weeks. Never have washed their hair. No, these people look clean. They look like they're... It's... It's a dumb description. <sighs> and the filmmaker did such a brilliant job of not really letting us see them. A brilliant job of not showing them? <laughs> no. You know what was frightening? The Cenobites and Hellraiser. Because we could see them. Because we could see that they had their outfits held wounds open. Lead Cenobite, as he was credited in the first Hellraiser, had nails stuck in his head. We can see that these aren't normal. These aren't real people. This The problem here is 
he's well, you can't see anything clearly in this movie. That's a problem. But also, as far as the Cenobabies go, he's letting us assume they're supernatural by not showing them to us, by having them show up in the red fog that had already been in the movie. So stupid. But it's it's not brilliant to hide something. Almost ever. And this isn't hiding something. If you put something in the center of the frame and we can't see it, that's bad filmmaking. Or there's a specific reason, like Darth Vader emerging out of the darkness, you know, or Michael Myers emerging out of the door frame. You give us that darkness and light it. And because Jeremiah has several mouth-breathing, inbred, slack-jawed morons at his disposal... Yeah, I'll give you that. <laughs> I may mean, not have suggested he's dirty, but Busey definitely feels like a slack-jawed <laughs> inbred as I played the character. And uh, when Mandy's burning, Native Americans' reaction definitely seems the same thing. But as it turns out, Jeremiah, he's a middle-aged guy, he's not very fit, and he's got this small, limp, little uncircumcised penis that is not particularly impressive. I think you're weirdly focused on his genitals, dude. I mean, the other point is he's taken off the robe and presenting his naked body, but Linus Roach is not particularly out of shape, and I don't think she's laughing because it's penis is small. She's laughing because he thinks she needs to see it. Because even on drugs, she's like, what the fuck is going on here? It's ridiculous. It's... Uh, it's like, I, I skipped over this earlier, but you're describing Mandy as being out of like a, a fantasy or a fairy tale with her long, dark hair. And she has this strange, supernatural, otherworldly quality to her in this that makes her resemble something out of like a fairy tale or a myth or a legend. She has this long, dark hair, and she's always wearing on these great heavy metal shirts like Black Sabbath and Motley Crue. And her metal shirts, I don't know how metal shirts goes to that, but long, dark hair doesn't make her a fairy tale. It just makes her a person. You're fetishizing positively her hair and fetishizing negatively his penis. That's weird. And this is when the movie gets really dark because they throw her in a bag, they drag her outside, they douse it in gasoline, they hang her right in front of Red Miller. And Red Miller, they have him chained up with barbed wire, like barbed wire around his mouth, barbed wire around his wrists. I mean, he's in rough shape. I have no comment on what he's saying here. He's just describing the plot in much more efficiently than the movie does. But I have a problem with him keep calling him Red Miller. He just saw a screening. There's probably screening materials, descriptions refer to the character by name because it's so weird to call a character A by first and last name, B by a name that wasn't in the film. You should be saying like Nicholas Cage. You know? Understanding as a reviewer and reviewers you get into a habit. Try to call people by their character names when you talk about their characters, try to call people by their real names when they're talking about the actors. But outside of press materials I should look up see if I can find the press materials of this movie. Outside of press materials this information doesn't exist. She's not Mandy Bloom. He's not Red Miller. And he has to sit there and watch the love of his life burn to death before his eyes. Love of his life. Ha! Sure. That's who she is. And the movie whips out one of the best secret weapons it could possibly have. Actor Bill Duke as the character Carruthers. Character Carruthers? I guess you've seen the end credits because he doesn't have a name either. So, fuck you. And not only does he have a lot of Nicolas Cage's weapons... A lot of Nicolas Cage's weapons? Uh, no, he has one. He has his crossbow. And then he happens to also have some arrows that he can use. They're not his already. But hey, you only saw the movie once. And I've only seen it quote-unquote twice. <laughs> I'm still ahead. 
And as Red begins his quest, the movie just keeps getting better and better. It starts employing all these astonishingly cool animated sequences featuring Mandy Bloom. And it's all this great imagery of her as like a rotting corpse or reaching into monsters and pulling jewels out. Astonishingly cool are really basic, simple, and unnecessary, arbitrary, pointless. It's like the most bizarre, insane, dark adult fantasy you've ever seen. Uh-huh. Yeah, whatever. I don't have time for this today. That's not even my desk. 